brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. I hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend. Um, I saw the the piece that you wrote about, you know, having barbecue, and, and there was actually a police officer who's a veteran who wrote a tweet that went viral that was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to celebrate the honor of these guys by barbecuing and having beers. Like, this is what they would have wanted, yeah. and enough with the Memorial Day isn't like a day to celebrate. I, I, I agreed saw, with that. I saw Chris Peranto saying the same thing. He was like, Say say happy Memorial Day to me. I don't care. Yeah, You're like it's cool. As long as people know, <laughs> we're, we're not snowflakes. Yeah, as long as people know the meaning of it, I, I think. Like, yes, you should know the difference between know the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. But it's it is a day I think for veterans who served with guys who are lost in combat. Uh, I, wrote, and, I wrote that article. You know, it, it's called. Uh, I think it's just called. It's okay to have a barbecue. Yeah, and it's like. There's all these like cringeworthy veterans posts on social media around this time of year. Like I dread looking at social media around Veterans Day and Memorial Day because of all these self-aggrandizing veterans that are like, oh, oh, look at me and all this shit. Like, oh, no, you're not allowed to be happy on Memorial Day. You're supposed to be solemn and sad. And, you know, like we're all supposed to go to a bar by ourselves and cry into our beer while we get drunk. It's like, no, that is not what. Any of the guys who died overseas, none of them want that for you. Like, they want you to go spend time with their family. Any one of those guys that died, well, I shouldn't say anyone. I can't speak for all the soldiers we lost. But I'll say personally, like, some of the people I knew who were killed in in combat, um, they would, I'm sure they would do anything for another day with their family. Yeah. Um, They would absolutely want me to go and spend time with my friends and family having a beer, having a barbecue, they would be furious with me if they thought I was in a bar getting drunk by myself, just feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. Like, they would be furious about that. So, which is to say that we had a very good time at the uh, Memorial Day Verses and Curses kickoff event, which, you know, a lot of those... Um, and we were at a bar drinking, but we were not by ourselves, <laughs> not by ourselves. and we were not crying. And a lot of those poems, though, were um, pretty dark. And Yeah, yeah. It, it You know, it... It wasn't a lot of it was in that tone of what we're talking about with Memorial Day. Dave, I mean, Dave, it was fun that, stuff. That too. Marine, uh, Dave Rose, he had some pretty funny poems he read, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there was a good mix up. I mean, the only thing that I think when I listened back to the last interview was Leo saying that one of the events is going to be at a strip club, right? Like, that's yeah. going to be a hard one to pull off, I think. Hard sell? <laughs> or maybe <laughs> I, an easy sell? I don't I, I That's going to be strange. So here is, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the event. And, you know, this is honestly how I felt. Because um, I could just say, oh, it was all great. Everybody was awesome. Um, and, and first of all, I really do um, recommend that if you're in the area of these upcoming events that you go. But, 
here's how I felt. Not just because he is a friend of mine and he's the, the guy that we know out of the three veterans who started this. Leo has a particular talent for performance, for like getting yeah. up there. Yeah. And there's definitely a, a big difference between performance and just reading a piece, reading a poem. And for, I'll be honest, like the rest of you guys, you went up there, you read some great pieces. Leo is like, has a talent for getting up there and performing, especially for someone who said he's never been to a poetry reading. He went up there and he was so polished. Jenkins missed his calling as a beatnik. Like he totally (laughs) should have been one of these beatnik art houses where you get the mongos out, the bongos (laughs) and everyone snaps their fingers up in the air. (laughs) I totally dig your groove, daddy. O. but seriously though, Jenkins is very talented um, and I, when I, when I was up there and I, I read, uh, excerpt from my book and I wasn't kidding, like those three guys are dudes who have like a mastery of the English language. They are very good at what they do. Um, they're authors. I'm just a writer. Like, I feel like I just write like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Like, and, and that's probably a byproduct of, um, both being, um, a novelist and a journalist. Yeah. Um, but you know, Jenkins has a, has a particular talent. I mean, he's like a, like a, an actual artist, you know, the way he's putting this stuff together. Yeah. And the way he moves around, I, I like, I feel that you could put Leo up in front of any audience and they would get something out of yeah, it. Yeah. He's just very, he's very skilled at this. So I think he's going to go on to do really big things. And I thought everybody was good, but I just think Leo in particular, um, He's he just knows how to do this. He knows yeah. how to get up there and perform, and that's that's something that I guess some people learn or you're born with. And for him, that he has it, especially for someone who's never done this before. Yeah, Jenkins just has some particular talent. You know, he, I guess probably he's just an extroverted guy. He always has been. Yeah, that's what I suspect anyway. Definitely. But um, yeah. The so the tour is the verses and curses tour. So it's still going around for like a, a week around the East Coast. I read an excerpt from my memoir um, about an operation in Iraq that uh, got a few laughs. I was, was glad pe- people enjoyed it. It was a story about um, how we uh, we hit a target in Iraq and our PL reported over the assault net said uh, we've detained six and a half men. And the company commander came over the net was like, what the fuck do you mean six and a half men? What's that mean? <laughs> and the PL gets back over there. He's like, we got uh, we detained six men and one midget. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he comes over the net. He's like, hold on, we're packing them out in a rucksack right now. <laughs> and the company commander got fucking pissed and was like, leave the fucking midget. We don't fucking need them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wrote about that. And, uh, and that, was a, that was the first, um, that was like kind of like the public premiere of, uh, yeah. of the book, the first time I'd read anything from it or shared any, any of that stuff publicly. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see how the rest of it comes out. Yeah. Jim West read a really touching piece about Jim, man, it took Jim like 60-some-odd years to get to that point that he was able to say some of that stuff. You know, yeah. I was proud of him. Yeah, it was in particular, it was about kind of living with the horrors of war, living with PTSD, the nightmares. Yeah, yeah. And, well, for Jim, it, you know, he went through combat and all that other stuff, um, rough upbringing as a kid. Um, and then when, when his son was murdered, his, his would have been his older son. His younger son was there at the event yeah. yesterday. Terrific kid. Um, but his older son was murdered um, by a drug dealer um, back in the 1990s. And when that happened, like, it crushed Jim. And he felt like he was being, like, the world was punishing him 
because he led this very violent life as like you know as a street fighter going out to bars and just mulling people all the time um all the stuff he did in combat he felt like there was some sort of like retro, like retribution uh for the life he had lived that his son had been killed and that like and so he lived with a lot of shame um, and became uh, ashamed even of his military service and all of the good things he did um, for a long time. And so I'm glad that he's kind of come out of his shell and he's able to talk about that stuff and he's able to um, regain a sense of pride in his life and his accomplishments rather than just see it in a, in a negative light. Yeah, and that, by the way, this is my first time meeting his son, Richard. I would never think that's Jim West's son. <laughs> I, I knew him when he was in high school because Jim had introduced us. That's right. I can barely recognize a kid now because he's been going through military training and everything else. But, I mean, he's a grown-ass man now. He's yeah. a totally different guy. But he's not um, uh, the type of person you would think that gets into street fights. No, 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 he's not. Funny, he's you know? not. He's it's also funny because, I, you know, he's a good kid. He grew up around here, so I, I shouldn't think this. But I would think of Jim West's son having that Georgia accent, and he does not. He sounds like a regular person from (laughs) the tri-state area. Uh, You know what's funny that he told me? Um, So he just got done with Air Force training, and I I think this is kind of interesting for, you know, there's always people who listen to the show who want to join the military, and he was pretty honest about saying that the physical um, attributes to get into uh, the Air Force, he was like, it wasn't anything... Uh, like overwhelming by any means. No, of course not. He, he, you know, he and he works out with Jim, who really will put you through a workout. Oh yeah, he was, like, he was, yeah, the he physical... was sparring with his dad, and like yeah, Jim West will put you through the ringer. Yeah, but according to him, joining the Air Force, and I mean, I wouldn't know. He was not that physically demanding. It, I mean, it's true. For, just to join the military, I, I mean, I don't think you. I think you have to take a physical. I don't think you even take a PT test. I mean, it was optional when I went in. And I took a, they were like, come take a PT test. And instead of going in as a private, you can go in as a PV2. And so I took some stupid PT test, did some push-ups, and they're like, oh, here you go. Um, I don't think there is a PT requirement per se. I think you just have to be in good physical health. There should be, though, right, don't you think? Um, well, the, the, the thought process behind it, I think, from the military's point of view, is like that's what basic training is for. It's to, like, whip your ass into shape. Um, so instead of having that that gate there, it's kind of like, okay, by the end of basic training, you have to pass the PT test. But even then, I mean, passing a, 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 like a regular Army PT test is not that hard. I mean, you do like, it's probably like just a pass is probably like 35 push-ups and like 40 sit-ups and run the two miles and, you know, 17 minutes or something like that. I mean which is very slow. Yeah. I mean, I don't quote me on that. You can go look at the uh, APFT uh, graduated scale for your age and see exactly what the numbers are. But, I mean, just passing a PT test is not, like, a big deal at all. Um, all right. Well, in other news, I definitely have to mention this. Uh, so as we're here, Kim Yong-shol, the former head of North Korean military intelligence, is traveling to New York City. Uh, Trump earlier today tweeted, we have put a great team together for our talks with North Korea. Meetings are currently taking place concerning summit and more. Kim Jong-chol, the vice chairman of North Korea, heading now to New York. Solid response to my letter. Thank you. So this contrasts with our last episode where this meeting was called off. It looks like it's very likely. It's reality TV, man. Is it it going to happen? Is Is it not going to happen? Who's it going to be? Who's going to win? I wonder where... um, 
Shoal is going to be, like where he's going. Are they going to meet at Trump Tower in New York City or the you know, I mean, the, the UN type the, there thing? Are, there are meetings with North Koreans in, in New York because the UN is here. But this is a pretty high profile they're, Well, they're making it high profile. Yeah. It's probably not the first time the guy met with American uh, officials. But we know about it. That we, that, yeah, but now they're, they're tweeting about it. So. Yeah. Yes, would you think Trump Tower? Um, if it, I yes. would think I would think not because it's that. I mean, that's at his personal residence. Um, I think he'd get into some trouble for that. So it'll probably be you know maybe at the UN or something. Yeah, like that's that. the other thing. Yeah. I was thinking. Um, all right. Well, also before we get to Daniel Ford, which I'm excited for, uh, we have this email from Mike, which he originally. It's funny. He originally sent an email before we had on. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. Before we had on Dan Gordon, and he was saying that he felt our comments on Israel that we'd gotten the story a little bit wrong, and and I emailed them back and I said I think you'll like the next episode with, um, with, sorry, I'm Dan I'm, Gordon I'm tired right now. <laughs> so Dan Gordon, I'm gonna sleep after this uh, podcast. I, I'm just I'm I'm like very, running off very little sleep right now, so I apologize, guys. Uh, yeah, so this is an email from Mike. Guys, the episode with Dan Gordon was one of the best ever. That was fantastic and straight-up insight into the current situation in Gaza. Thanks for getting the real story out to your listeners. I have friends serving there now, and they confirmed that they didn't shoot anyone until they got within 100 meters of the border fence, and then they only shot below the knees. Jack, you mentioned wanting to come here to Israel to do some coverage of the situation. If you or Ian decide to take a trip out there, I would love to host you guys for a weekend in the West Bank. We have a large American-sized house with guest room, top-end scotch, and I would love to give you a tour of the area and some insights into the current geopolitical situation here. I can also put you in touch with others who are more in the know of the military and political side of things. So please take me up on the offer. My family and I would love to host and provide you guys with some real Texas-style hospitality <laughs> in the other Lone Star State. Uh, Semper Fi, Mike Ekstute. So probably pronouncing that wrong, but appreciate So I guess a former Marine uh, living in Israel. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'd take him up on that. Um, I have his email address and phone number. How so. mu- Yeah, I mean... If you think about it, like how many, how much news coverage have we really seen of like people doing like embedded reporting with the IDF? Not a whole lot. Yeah, not a whole lot. It would be interesting. Yeah, I agree. So keep sending the emails to softrep.radio at softrep.com. With that, joining us for the first time, Daniel Ford, author of Cowboy, the interpreter who became a soldier and a warlord and one more casualty of our war in Vietnam. Uh, it actually just came out last month, so it's available now. Order it. Uh, Daniel's book was actually mentioned to us uh, by Vietnam Green Beret Jim Morris on episode 346, and Daniel reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm the author of that book, and figured we'd have you on because it's a great story. Um, the book is the first-hand account of what went on because Daniel was actually embedded himself with forces in Saigon in 1964, and you're a U.S. Army vet and reporter in Vietnam I was looking at your website. You've written dozens of books about all different types of conflicts uh, worldwide. So, honored to have you on, sir. I'm glad, glad to be here. And, and it's, as you say, it's Cowboy's second appearance on your program. Yep. 
Hey, Daniel, this is Jack. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's great to have you on to talk about this gentleman. Um, as I, I've said before, a lot of the interpreters that work with the U.S. military are kind of the unsung heroes of these conflicts. Um, I know it's true for uh, Vietnam, and it was true uh, when I was in Iraq as well. Um, so I'm really hoping, you know, that you can uh, illuminate our uh, listeners about who he was and what he did. Cowboy, of course, was a, a lot more than an interpreter, uh, almost from the beginning. Uh, he was hired on at, uh, at Bonanau, uh, which is near uh, it, which was his hometown. And uh, that was the first, uh, it was the beginning of the strike force companies. Uh, he was created uh, by, special, by uh, the CIA. Uh, before special forces came under army control. And there was an international voluntary service worker, Dave Nuttall, who came, apparently came up with the idea and sold it to Gilbert Layton and William Colby uh, of the CIA in Saigon. And he's the man who hired Cowboy as a truck driver. Uh, and he... He, he agrees that Cowboy immediately became very helpful to the, the there were several Green Berets assigned to the camp. This would have been in uh, the fall uh, of 1961. Early on. Early on. That was the first one. And the, the, it was very different from uh, what it was when uh, Jim Morris came along three years later. The idea was village defense. Uh, the uh, strategic hamletting, right? Yeah, well, it, <laughs> it was it was an alternative to the strategic hamlet. You you took an existing uh, highland village. In the case of uh, of now it was uh, Rade, and and most of the early ones were Rade camps. And the idea was to, to spread around an you know, ever-growing radius so that you, you wound up with uh, village defenders who were volunteers and a mobile strike force uh, company uh, and eventually a, a, a battalion uh, uh, covering a dozen or more camps or villages. Uh, and it was only when the Army took over uh, in what they called Operation Switchback, though it wasn't switching back at all, it was switching over, uh, that the, uh, the uh, strikers became a mobile force operating out of a, a set area. And, and uh, gradually they became dispersed on the, uh, the frontier of uh, Cambodia and Laos, uh, and we used to intercept, but that was not how it began. I don't know what happened to Cowboy after uh, and uh began its transition. Dave Nuttall quit and went home uh, in 1962 after a year setting it up. And uh, the many of the villages were turned over to the province chief in Bami Tuat. And Cowboy, meanwhile, had married uh, 
married Dave Nettles' ex-wife, as it happens, <laughs> and uh, and adopted his or took over his his daughter. And I suspect that, and she lived in she was a, a Jirai and lived in uh, Chirio, a bit to the north. The three major population centers in the highlands, from north to south, Pleiku and Chirio and Bami to it. Uh, and uh, Jirai and Rade both were, were uh, matrilineal tribes. So when you married, you went to, went to live with your wife's family. Uh, Dave Nuttall didn't do that. Uh, but Cowboy may have done, uh, may have moved, moved up to near Cheerio and, and got hired on by his own account at uh, the Boon Bing camp, the one where uh, Jim Morris later served. But apparently he got fired, and uh, he, he got fired a lot, actually. <laughs> and he claimed that he was the battalion commander, which seemed very unlikely, because he, he was, the, the, the camp was Jirai, and he was a Rade, uh, and he was very young, uh, 25, 26. But in any event, he wound up a little farther north near Pleiku at uh, Duck Co. And the, the, the first uh, Green Beret who wrote about him was uh, Captain Johnny Corns, uh, who took over the Duck Co. camp uh, between, <clears throat> between Pleiku and, and the Cambodian border uh, in 19... 63 August, and Cowboy was already installed there, was already called the Cowboy, and had already uh, adapted his his swagger and his line of talk, and he, which he apparently got out of John Wayne movies. <laughs> he said, you know, uh, "Sorry, don't get it done, dude," and and and, uh, and so on. However, he, again, he, of course, he's not living, living with his wife and daughter. So he, he moved down to Bunbing. Uh, and Cruz McCullough, who was the commander of that A-team, 424, I think it was, uh, Jim Morris's team, hired him on in December 1963. And... and both these men, Johnny Corns and Cruz McCullough, uh, agreed that Cowboy was one of the most natural soldiers I'd ever encountered. And that was my own impression of him. I mean, I, I, was, I was never in combat, so I don't pretend to know a great deal about it. But he, he struck me as the man most comfortable in his skin in cami fatigues and a bush hat and carrying uh, his carbine or M16 or AR-15, whatever it was, uh, he just seemed natural at that work. And uh, I was keeping a, a I, I came in there in, in uh, June of 1964 and I kept a journal. I would, I would I would type it up every couple of nights, 
And uh, when I got to Bunbing, I wrote uh, the Jirai, that, that is the, the tribesman who, who lived around Chirio, looked just like the mountain yards I met in Pleiku, sturdy, dark, and coarse-featured. The only handsome man in the group is the interpreter, whose name is Philippe Drouin, but whom the Americans call Cowboy. He cuts a dashing figure in an expensive, broad-brimmed camouflage hat. Actually, they weren't all that expensive. I think I paid $3 for mine, tailor-made in Saigon, and tiger-striped camouflage fatigues. He carries a hunting knife strapped to his waist. He earned his nickname for his habit of demonstrating his fast draw with his knife, using Viet Cong prisoners as his audience and target. Supposedly, he has killed 22 men with that knife, smiling his brilliant smile. You've got to take the bad with the good, sighed the team's executive officer, Captain Walter Swain of Miami, and Cowboy is a good interpreter. I don't know who who told me that he'd killed 22 men. Uh, I've also seen the figure 15. Uh, and, and I don't know how much truth is in it, but that's what I wrote down when, when I met him. So, I mean, he was a pretty extraordinary character by the time you got there in 64. He was, and, and he became more so, of course. And, and I, I was astounded that uh, people who were never near the Highlands knew about him. <laughs> uh, I, I, I talked to our email, I don't remember which, uh, a special forces officer, uh, Carr, Carter Carr, I think his name was, who lived way up, who was stationed way up by the 17th parallel. And he knew all about this. And this was, this was after Halboy was killed uh, and way outside his area of operation. So he was well known, apparently. And Cowboy was working with A-teams at this point. Yes, yes. apparently starting as, as early as uh, um, 19, early 1963, maybe even late 62. Which makes sense. And I mean, that's about when Jim Morris got there. 64. Yeah. He, he, well, actually, yeah, he came in in December 63. Right, right. And uh, that was when Cowboy was hired, apparently shortly after they arrived. So what are some of the other uh, adventures um, or misadventures that uh, <laughs> that Cowboy got into working with uh U.S. Special Forces in Vietnam. One of the things that impressed me, Johnny Corns wrote a book called Our Time in Vietnam. And he tells how, that, and as I said, they were still under CIA at that time. And, and, and once a month, uh, the agent would fly in with, with a basket of, of, of piastres for the payroll and and. and pay off the men. Uh, and he, one time he brought in a, a Leica camera and, and gave it to Captain Corns and apparently told him uh, to slip across into Cambodia and photograph a, an airstrip that had been recently built. Uh, and they set off and, and on their way they were ambushed. And 
uh, as, as Captain Corns uh, uh, tell the story, uh, Cowboy sees the, the BAR, Brown Automatic Rifle, from the man who was carrying it, you know, fired it from the hip, silenced the ambush, and, and set the whole thing straight. And as they got towards the, the border, uh, he, he took the camera from Captain Corns uh, and, and apparently picked out, picked out the men he wanted and went across the frontier and came back with the photographs that were needed. Wow. And you really get the impression that uh, Cowboy was the man running that operation, that he just took over. And from what I saw of him, I believe that was possible. Yeah, I mean, he was the guy who understood the language, the terrain, the culture. I mean, Americans would kind of be lost without that kind of local knowledge backing them up, I, I would think. Jim Morris wrote in War Story that the, the madness of their six-month uh, deployment, where, as he said, you spend two months getting your feet on the ground. Uh, no, he said four months, <laughs> and, and then two months of, of actually doing something. Yeah. I sort of figured it was probably two, two months uh, getting ready and two months operating at, at full bore and maybe two months thinking of you're back at your family in Okinawa. Because most, most of these men were, were, were married and had children. So they would think of home. But, but it, it, was, it was a crazy system, really. Even a year seemed, seemed little. The CIA, to its credit, uh, did stick around for a while. I think William Colby was in Saigon three years. Uh, so they had a little more institutional memory than uh, the Army did. And what ended up happening to Cowboy? I mean, right now we're still talking about pretty early on in, in, the, uh, in the war. Um, what what happened after uh, after Jim Morris left? Um, did he stay and continue to work with special forces? He was he was working with several sides. Apparently, uh, I didn't know about this at the time, but in uh, August '64, uh, there was a uprising of mm-hmm. Highlanders uh, in, in several camps were overrun or, or seized, seized by their, their uh, by the strikers. Uh, and in some cases, the Vietnamese cadre were killed. Uh, and in one case, the Americans were held hostage. And Cowboys apparently was, was deeply involved in all this. So, so, and after it was over and, and, and there, there was some compromise between uh, the general in Saigon and and the the rebellious Highlanders, some some compromise offers were made, and and there was a meeting at Camp Holloway in 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 Pleiku. Camp Holloway was also where the Special Forces B team was located, and uh, Jerry uh, Hickey, who was a civilian anthropologist working for Rand Corporation and indirectly for the Department of Defense, uh, who had been in, in, in Vietnam for years, 
uh, went to that meeting and, and he said that the that uh, cowboy Philip Philip uh, was one of the delegates there and that the delegates wore jackets and ties which which really amazed me I, I you know I could easily picture him in camis but in a jacket and tie seemed a bit of a stretch <laughs> and and one of the uh, few uh, concessions that the Saigon government honored but the promises they they made was that uh, Highlanders would be allowed to become aspirants in in the Arvin, the Army of South Vietnam, uh, an aspirant being a French uh, grade of a sub-lieutenant or cadet officer. Interesting. And Cowboy apparently became one of those. Uh, but as the story is told, he, he was never paid, uh, which was always a hazard if he was serving in the Vietnamese Army. Uh, so he deserted, and he went to the Mike Force in Nha Trang and became an interpreter there. And what happened to him after that, I'm not sure. By the time Jim Morris came back, and it would be in 67, uh, Cowboy apparently had uh, recruited his own division, which sounds more like a, a regiment, uh, <laughs> uh, and with a training center somewhere east of Miami to it, toward, towards the sea, and and, and there's, there's a great sequence in in Jim Morris's uh, war story about the two of them getting into a jeep and and heading out to inspect this the Dam E Division it's called of commando paratroop. And Jim was very impressed by the soldiers there, but when when they uh, left the populated part of, of uh, Bami to it, uh, he mentioned uh, uh, racking a cartridge into the chamber of his M16 and Cowboy looking over at him and grinning. And the implication being that you know, there's always a possibility this is a setup and he's being sold out to the North Vietnamese. And the uh, we're so professional, uh, one of us could kill the other uh, and, and, and not have no regrets. Uh, and in all of this, you don't get really get a sense of where this, this, this uh, uh, commando unit is located, but it's somewhere somewhere east of Bami to it, and has about uh, 3,000 men on board. Uh, and apparently Cowboy rented out, rented out these battalions to anyone who needed them. I, <laughs> I, I don't know if this included the North Vietnamese, but probably not. But there was always that possibility. And he eventually got into so much trouble playing all sides, uh, the uh, U.S. Army, the, perhaps the French intelligence, uh, perhaps the North Vietnamese, uh, that 
he, he became hunted by his own side. And uh, he, in, in the end, was, was ambushed. And it didn't, didn't work out as easily. It never does, apparently. Uh, he, he was uh, going to be taken down while he was at dinner. Uh, and he escaped out the back and fled, fled out to uh, a uh, Mike Force unit. Apparently, uh, where apparently most of the men were his own soldiers, uh, and scarfed up a lot of uh, weaponry and two deuce and a half trucks and a, and a three quarter ton truck to carry the stuff off with. But uh, was was eventually captured uh, by his own side, by by the full row uh, Highlander rebels, and executed in uh, January of 1968, just before the Tet Offensive. And that that was the, that was the end of Cowboy. It's pretty incredible. I mean, so. He, I mean, as it says in the byline of your book, I mean, he basically did install himself as a warlord and created a mercenary army in South Vietnam. Jim Morris mentions that uh, he he was told he, he when he went back he, he wanted, of course, to command an A team, but as an upcoming major, rising a rising captain, uh, he was stuck stuck in the. B team in play coup, and he was told to open up a uh, uh, a camp, may have been an abandoned camp uh, near the Cambodian border, and he he simply asked Cowboy uh, to to produce the men, uh, which Cowboy did, and they were all obviously to a trained eye, uh, experienced soldiers, although they were wearing loincloths and. Cast, cast off uniforms. Uh, so that that may have been his outfit. And as the story is told, he you know he was like a executive headhunter. He he charged uh, uh, three months' salary or something like this uh, you know, of your of your first three months' salary. You rebated to to cowboy. He was an entrepreneurial minded person. And, and of all of these, apparently 10 percent of their salary of the of the uh, Highlanders in these strike forces was supposed to go back to full row to to uh, support the their uh, aspirations for independence. Uh, and he he may may have kept a lot of that back, and uh, that may have been why they they put the finger on him at the end. That's a, I mean, a fascinating story. And I mean, it seems like all too often um, this is what ends up happening to our allies and the people who help us out is um, they end up getting killed by their own people. Well, or, or simply left behind, as, as happened to many of these full row fighters. Uh, they kept on fighting uh, after after 1975 and and. The Highlanders were always badly treated by the Vietnamese. Uh, the, say, the saying of Vietnam is that it's like a, a, a peasant carrying 
two baskets of rice on a long, thin pole. And one basket is the Red River Delta in the north, and the other basket is the Mekong River Delta in the south. And the pole is the shoreline of Vietnam, which is where, where the ethnic Vietnamese settled. Uh, and the Highlanders were the aboriginal inhabitants. They were there for thousands of years. Uh, and were regarded as, as savages. Uh, they were f f better treated by the French and, and by the Americans, which is why they they were so loyal to the foreigners as opposed to the people in Saigon. And the North Vietnamese, of course, were no better or worse. Uh, Dave Nettle tells the story of how his uh, wife and daughter were treated in, in April of 1975 uh, when the North Vietnamese police, or the, now the Vietnamese police, uh, came to their home and, and, and uh, beat Arkham Hun uh, to death and, and injured the daughter sufficiently, that, that, but she did recover in time Good Lord. and and came to the United States in, in time. And, but a, a lot of the, uh, the fighters wound up in Cambodia uh, as recently as the 90s and uh, were many were eventually repatriated to the United States. Yeah, I mean, that's something um, I, I should have asked Jim Morris, and, and I mean, we'll have to have him back on again at some point. But I mean, the, some of the former Special Forces soldiers and presumably others as well played a pretty big role in, um, you know, having some of these uh, the people who helped us in Vietnam from the Central Highlands and helping them immigrate to the United States, if I remember correctly. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans got, got hooked on Vietnam. Uh, Jim Morris was one. Mike Bing in, in Mammy Tuit was another. Uh, he, he was captured at Tet. Uh, he, he was a civilian. Uh, started out with the International Voluntary Service and wound up working for USAID. He spent uh, six years in captivity, uh, was flown out uh, in, in 1975 when, when, they, when, they, when the prisoners were brought home. Uh, even when he was recovering, he went, he went, went back to Vietnam uh, to, to, to work with them. Uh, and, yeah, the, the special, special Forces did uh, work, work closely with bringing those, those uh, refugees, the, the Montagnard fighters, back. Uh, you know, and after 27 years of war. And so this is your latest book, Daniel, um, just for people who are interested in picking it up. It's called Cowboy, the interpreter who became a soldier, a warlord and one more casualty of our war in Vietnam. Um, I We have a copy here. I'm going to actually take this home and read it. Um, I'm sorry I haven't gotten to it before the interview. Um, but this is really cool, and I'm really glad that you put some time into this and, and telling Cowboy's story. If you go to you know Dan's website, as I mentioned during the intro, there's there's 
tons of other books Dan has written. I mean, there's dozens of books you've written on foreign conflicts and have just an extensive background. You wrote a book about a John Boyd. That's really cool. Yeah. So for the, for the listeners, make sure you go to danfordbooks.com. And this book in particular just came out last month, so it's available um, Kindle or paperback on, on Amazon. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. All right. Th- thanks, Daniel. Great having Daniel Ford on once again, danfordbooks.com. Cowboys available now. Uh, and as always, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our crates have been Emerson Knives, a Blackhawk Industrial Medical Pouch, and cool stuff like a custom playing card set with exclusive photo shoot pictures we did of models with guns. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us for you dog owners Check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at Kuna.dog. It's Kuna.dog. It's efficient for you, and your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. That's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. If you check out the Instagram, um, many people on the staff have dogs enjoying their boxes, like Nick Betts' dog. And I even saw um, Nick Kaufman gave a box to his dog. A lot of guys on the side of dogs. I need to get a dog. Uh, my dog is old as shit. He's 17 <laughs> years old. Does, I met your dog. He doesn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> sleeps wherever. Yeah. Comes right next to you while you're working, lays down on the floor and just farts for hours. <laughs> I uh, I do miss having a dog. It's been many years for me. Um, well, also as a reminder for all of those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. It's only $4.99 a month, and you can check out the app as well, the Spec Ops Channel app. Uh, We appreciate you guys listening. As always, next episode, I have a uh, special to air of different fiction authors we've had in studio, um, from Tony Tata to Anderson Harp and Brad Thor. So I have a few more in mind to get on in the future. I'm excited for it, man. we got to get more in-studio people because it has been yeah. a while other than Paul Shari. Um, yeah, and we have the new studio here. So I'd like to get some more people who can come in. We're in, like, the media capital of the world. So. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's just been light on, uh, on like, military books right now because usually there's a lot of people who want to come in here and are going to be touring the area, you know, with big books out. Um, but not as many lately. But, you know, every week we do get multiple people on but we gotta get some people here in new york all right well enjoy guys 
hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend once again. And for those who, you know, lost family members or friends in combat, I hope you honored their service to our country and, and the people that you love. Uh, we'll see you guys soon. And like I said, next episode, special uh, fiction authors uh, episode. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.